To achieve your highest goals, you have to be willing to abandon them. Today, we're publishing the first in a small series of conversations with Professor Ken Stanley. Reading Ken's book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, was one of the most intellectually awakening moments of the latter part of my life. It really turned my thinking upside down, making me question many deeply held beliefs which I had previously. The episode that we did with him was many months in the making and perhaps the greatest ever episode of MLST. Ken argued in his book that our world has become saturated with objectives. The process of setting an objective, attempting to achieve it and measuring progress along the way has become the primary route to achievement in our culture. It's not like he's saying that objectives are bad per se, especially if they're modest. But what he thinks are that when goals are ambitious, which is to say they are unknowable, complex or abstract, or put more simply, that they entail discovery, creativity, invention, innovation or happiness, then the search space becomes deceptive, which is to say the measure itself becomes a false compass which blinds us to the stepping stones which we should actually take. I mean, is the key to artificial intelligence really related to intelligence? Does taking a job with a higher salary really bring you closer to being a millionaire? The problem is that the stepping stones which lead to ambitious objectives tend to be pretty strange. They don't resemble the final end state. Vacuum tubes led to computers, for example, and YouTube started as a video dating website. In a sense, creativity itself is actually a search problem. Is it possible to explore a search space intelligently without using an objective to align towards discovery and away from the trap of preconceived results? Greatness is possible if you're willing to stop demanding what greatness should be. The greatest moments and epiphanies in our life are so often unexpected and unplanned. Serendipity can play an outsized role in our lives. At the end of Joel Lemon and Ken Stanley's 2011 paper, Abandoning Objectives, they concluded that it was almost like a riddle. Novelty search suggests a surprising new perspective on achievement, which is to say, to achieve your highest goals, you must be willing to abandon them. I always get engineers on my uh, team to read this paper and it's illuminating in so many ways. I love using the visual analogy of a maze to represent the search problem of life and stepping stones in that maze as being either potential objectives or end states. Of course, we don't know about the existence of most of the objectives and the fog of war blinds us from seeing far ahead into the maze. The fundamental problem is the missing information problem. But as we'll soon find out, not just the information itself, but how we represent it, understand it, experience it, and even know it. The fascinating thing is that if we were an oracle, and we knew exactly which steps to take in life. We could become billionaires within months, or we could achieve anything we wanted to. The only inconvenient thing stopping us from realizing our dreams is that the space of possibilities is exponentially large. It's very expensive 
to sample many trajectories in that space. So we tend to get stuck in certain sections of the maze for long stretches of time. Ken thinks that the most valuable commodity in search is information. We must accumulate as much of it as possible. There's an arrow of informational complexity in natural evolution. And Ken was the first machine learning researcher to take seriously the growing yet controversial view in biology that adaptive selection does not explain the arrow of complexity in nature. We're standing in a maze right now. There are many doors within walking distance which lead to unthinkable greatness. We simply haven't walked over and opened them. We are existence proofs of general intelligence. Every single one of us has a brain, but just like the infinite number of doors we could open in the maze of life, it took evolution billions of years and gazillions of individual life forms to create our brains. Now, Ken is known for his pioneering research in the open-endedness space. You might recall the poet paper, the pairwise open-ended trailblazer. Uh, it was the first ever episode of MLST that we spoke about that, but that's an example of this line of research. Open-endedness might seem like a nebulous term, but you can think of it as being an AI system which doesn't have a boundary in its state space and doesn't ever finish accumulating information. Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington, the notorious astronomer and physicist born in the late 19th century, spoke about the subjectivity in science. His point is that science only tells us a sliver of what's really happening in the world around us. And we should be a lot less arrogant in our claims to understand it and our attempts to formalize it. Physics, he argued, can never reveal the true nature of things. Rather, it deals with relations between observables, which are subjectively selected by the human mind. He says that he was inclined to attribute the whole responsibility for the laws of mechanics and gravitation to the mind and deny the external world any share in them. He went on to say, the laws which we have hitherto been unable to fit into a rational scheme are the true natural laws inherent in the external world and mind has no chance of molding them in accordance with its own outlook. Subjectivity is everywhere, and yet in so many ways we delude ourselves that we are transforming subjectivity into objectivity. Imagine a fisherman catching fish in a small ocean. Depending on the size of his net, he might reason that there's nothing very small in the ocean, because those objects are slipping through his net. What we can agree on is that our understanding of physics breaks if we zoom in too much or zoom out too much so at best, we have a frame of reference, which Eddington would argue is observer relative. Surprisingly little in our world can actually be objectified without using abstract motifs. Have you ever asked a philosopher to define what it means to be real or what it means to exist? I can guarantee you that they'll be reaching. They'll say things like, something exists if it has a causal effect on the world or if it can be measured, or if it's not illusory, which is to say, uh, it is as it appears, or, you know, perhaps that it's genuine, 
in big air quotes. What does it mean to be intelligent? What is life? Describe an ecosystem. What is British culture? Describe your mind. Describe your conscious experience. Have you heard of the parable of the blind men and the elephant? Any attempt to formalize a complex phenomena lead to excluding large parts of the truth. What fascinated me about this conversation with Ken this evening is I got a much deeper understanding of his philosophy. He led by saying that he thought it's worth questioning whether artificial intelligence is even a science or not. Just let that sink in for a moment. I'd been too focused on my mental framework of objectives, behavior, and actions. The broader story is that Ken thinks society and institutions are scared of any subjectivity. Subjectivity in general. He thinks that attempts to formalize complex, emergent and integrative phenomena like intelligence, consciousness, life, society, the mind or anything else for that matter, only deludes us and blocks us from potentially discovering a deeper reality later. It's a very human trait to seek to understand the world around us to varying degrees of self-delusion. Before we understand a particular phenomena, it's almost impossible to come up with a good scientific and formal definition. How could we possibly define something which we don't understand well? This is the paradox in computer science and philosophy. The more we seek something, the more it eludes us. It sounds almost anti-intellectual, doesn't it? This idea that we should reject formalization. But Ken thinks that many phenomena will only be trivialized by vacant attempts to formalize them through oversimplification, because inevitably we'll chop off many aspects which might not be captured by the formalization. I had always associated Ken's philosophy with the missing information problem rather than the representation problem. The missing information problem is that we don't know something or we only know part of the truth. The representation problem is that we simply don't understand or at least we can't verbalize what we're experiencing. Ken says that the corporate world is dominated by the attempted veneer of objectivity. If you're trying to land an engineering role in FANG, your tolerance for ambiguity and subjectivity is the single most selective feature of the level which you get hired at. If you can solve clearly defined problems, you're a level four. If you can find the problems, you're a level six. If you can find the areas, you're a level seven. And if you can find people who can find the areas, you're a level eight or a level nine. I give loads of open-ended tasks to my team discover people in the organization who are subject matter experts in domain X, build an operating model for knowledge sharing and standardization. What does good look like? It's possible we don't know it yet, which is the missing information problem, but it's also possible that we know it, but we're not able to verbalize it, which is the representation problem, inherent with all complex phenomena. It's quite interesting actually, I'm building a code review platform called Merge and it's easy to objectify all of the low-level metrics such as how many customer engineers we support or how efficiently we're sharing knowledge. All of the higher-level outcomes like a better engineering culture, they're emergent properties, right? It's a bit like pornography. You know it when you see it.
So now, I give you Professor Ken Stanley. We have a nose for the interesting. That's how we got this far. That's how civilization came out. That's why the history of innovation is so amazing. Everything washes out when we start ruling by committee. Like, we have to allow people to follow their passions to their extremes. And yet we run society as if this actually makes any sense at all. I think the gradient of interestingness is probably the best expression of like the ideal divergent search. You get to this problem that like, I don't know how to formalize interestingness. What you get to then are proxies for interestingness. That not everything that's novel is interesting, but just about everything that's interesting is novel. It is in my personality and nature to want to overthrow this, I guess we could say tyranny of objectives. So today, we have an incredibly special guest. Indeed, my hero in AI, Professor Kenneth Stanley. Now, the Kenneth Stanley show that we filmed, which is to say episode 38, was my favourite episode that we've ever done. Reading Kenneth's book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, and, and preparing for that show triggered an incredible amount of intellectual growth for me. And a hallmark of that, you know, when you learn something profound, is that you start recognizing it in many other domains of your life. I mean, you remember when you learned probability theory for the first time and you started seeing exponential distributions absolutely everywhere. Um, so uh, I was just saying to, to Kenneth that when we listened back to the show last night, um, it was probably the best example ever of a show we over-prepared for, which is to say that during the interview, we were just bamboozling Kenneth. We were so excited, we almost couldn't control ourselves. And... Um, I think in particular, Keith and Kenneth reach a common ground, actually, in the sense that divergence and convergence don't have to be hyperbolic or entirely mutually exclusive. Now, Kenneth thinks that we have a nose for the interesting. That's how we got this far. It's the basis of all innovation and the secret of our society. Kenneth believes that the concept of deception in search, which is to say getting stuck in local optimums and indeed deluding ourselves that we even know what good looks like in the first place, is what regularly sends us into brick walls. Kenneth thinks that institutions are full of gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers only want to see your objectives and metrics. Any expert on search would know that it's completely naive, and yet we still use this approach for the most complex problems in our society. Committees wash out everything. We need to let people follow their interests to the extremes, and risk has to be tolerated in order to make the greatest discoveries. Anyway, Professor uh, Kenneth Stanley, it's an absolute honor to have you back on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, so it's been great. I really enjoyed being on it, and I'm glad to be back here. I mean, even the thing you made in front of that, that show was awesome. Like that was, <laughs> I showed that to my son and he was like, what the heck is that? He's like, that's not my dad. And I was like, that is, he's like, you never seen me in that kind of uh, that's funny. environment, but it was pretty cool. Oh yeah. So we, we, we painted a cafe in behind you, but we, we did that yeah. first thing in blender, but I had to learn blender just for that. It was the first thing I ever did. And what I started doing afterwards, I, I wish that we did your show a tiny bit later. I started using my virtual reality headset. So I've got, oh, I've got yeah. an Oculus Quest. And then you, I, I use Google Tilt Brush, and then I can kind of create a beautiful 3D environment. I can put slides and videos and all kinds of stuff up there. And that would have been perfect for that because I wanted to show all of the stepping stones and the divergent uh, search in a, th in a 3D environment. But that's a cool thing is so, we're, um, we're getting more sophisticated and we're starting to use, you know, Manum to do animations because we want to be able to really kind of, at least for some of the episodes, tell the story in a very visual and, and educational way. So we're kind of going back now revisiting some of our favorite you know, favorite episodes and can we tell parts of it again with this, this new 
technology, if you will, or new techniques that we have skills That's at. That's cool. Yeah. I got to tell great. you, um, just um, on a personal note, because you mentioned, you know, your son saying that's not my dad. Part of <laughs> part of my motivation for for doing these these YouTube, you know, shows is that I want there to be something where my kids can go, maybe when I'm gone or whatever, and look back and say, "Oh yeah, that was my dad. That's what he sounded like. <laughs> that's what he looked like. You know, that's how he talked." Yeah, it's a really nice thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The I, problem is no one understands what we're talking about. Well, maybe they will. My friends and family, they say, Maybe oh, the I, I tried to watch it, but I just couldn't understand what you were talking <laughs> about. It, it's so funny because from my perspective, we, we're really um, making things accessible and dumbing things down as much as possible. And, yeah. and I still think of myself as completely clueless, but it's quite deceptive, isn't it, that you you don't realize you're talking another language. Yeah, it's most funny. People. I mean, my mom, I, you know, I, I said, here's this video. I mean, she, she has no idea what any of this is, but she showed her sister who's like 80 years old and didn't know anything. And her sister was just like, you know, you... It seemed like you were really winning in that discussion, even though I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, at least the tone sounded like I'm winning. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. Well, speaking, speaking of winning, and that's kind of the, the question I wanted to ask you is that, you know, it's one of those ideas, Tim mentioned these kind of ideas that the first time you hear them and after you kind of digest them a bit, then you start seeing them everywhere and you start seeing, you know, connections, connections to it everywhere. And I think. I think your ideas are, are like that. At least they were they were for me. And I've I started to come to um, this line of thinking that I just wanted to ask you about, just to see if it's completely off base or if there's any maybe any kind of truth to it. Which is, um, and I, I know I keep repeating this, Tim, and I apologize, but one of the most beautiful quotes I ever heard was from from Claude Shannon uh, many decades ago. I heard this, and he said, uh, "You know, we have knowledge of the past, but we cannot change it." We have no knowledge of the future, but we control it. And I realized back then that there's this, this duality and it's, it's reflected there in that asymmetry of time, but also in the way I think about science and engineering. So there are the two mm. sides of a coin where scientists use engineering to control in order to gain new knowledge, whereas engineers take the knowledge that we have and they use it to gain control, you know, by building a better building, mm. crossing a, a water stream or whatever. And it's also similar to the exploration versus exploitation, you know, trade-off. And I'm coming around to this way of thinking that, yeah, you know, uh, objectives can be quite harmful when you're in that exploration, you know, phase, trying to learn new knowledge, because just as you point out, who knows what the stepping stones are going to be like. And all the kind of, let's say, quote unquote, counter examples that I were thinking of before, it's because they fall more on the engineering side of things, which is, okay, look, we have some knowledge mm. and we do have a very specific goal we're trying to mm. do with that knowledge, you know, build a faster rocket or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we just go down this kind of very refinement, objective-based kind of goal, but it's really not going to lead us necessarily to new, new knowledge or new insight. Is this kind of a fair dichotomy or not? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm nice, Keith, to hear you're coming coming around to that way of thinking somewhat. Um, <laughs> it's I, a while, hey, it? I'm open minded. <laughs> um, it's um, yeah, it's a, it, interesting to uh, connect this to Shannon. That that I appreciate, and there's an interesting connection. And um, I think the dichotomy is is pretty fair. Um, that <clears throat> um, like in search of discovery, yeah, a lot of engineering principles are not really the best tools um for for innovation necessarily especially basic like basic exploration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and um it's true also that 
yeah, it seems like engineering culturally kind of pervades scientific education, at least in some sciences. I don't mm -hmm. know, like I'm, I only know about my own experience in computer science, but like the, I was in computer science engineering major at UPenn that was like computer science engineering is like one thing. Um, and so, yeah, like a, a lot of engineering philosophy is like stuck in with the science. Um, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe there is, um, like some, uh, conflation there. Um, but I, right. I also think like another thing to consider, which might be a little bit more out there and, um, controversial is that, um, I think it's worth questioning whether uh, artificial intelligence really is only science. Um, and is that, is that actually what we're doing? Um, like a lot of the discussion about AI, um, we'll come back to, um, you know, that's not scientific or this is a kind of attack or a way of looking at like a, a, an idea where like we can uh, sort of invoke science snobbery, um, to put something down. Um, and you know, one interpretation is just that, um, you know, maybe there, it was a good scientific insight, but, but somebody just missed it or something. They're not seeing the big picture. Another interpretation is that actually this is not science <clears throat> and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, um, caged inside of that, only that way of thinking. Um, <clears throat> and I've actually, I've written about this, but much less, received much less attention when I wrote about it, but I thought a lot about it. Like that in some ways I think AI is, is, has a lot of connection to art. Um, and I don't mean just in the sense that like you can use AI to generate art. I mean, you can do that obviously, but I mean, in the sense that like art is about, um, the reproduction often, not always, but often it's about the reproduction of natural artifacts in an artificial way. Like, I mean, when you, when you paint a picture of like an apple or something, mm. like a still life, um, and nobody's expecting it to be a real apple. Like that's not the question. Um, and nobody even expects there's necessarily a faithful reproduction of an apple. Or let's say like, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night. Like it doesn't look anything like a real Starry Night that I bet anybody on earth has ever seen, even if they're on drugs. <laughs> um, and yet what does it do? What, what is the value of Starry Night then? Since it's not, it's not accurate. Scientifically, it's not a very good job. Um, well, it actually gives you new insight, um, into something about Starry Nights that you hadn't really thought about. Um, and that's, what's thrilling about it is that like, it gives you a new perspective on something that you're familiar with. AI is also concerned with the reproduction of natural phenomena in artifice. Um, it's the same thing. And, uh, in mm. a similar way, like an algorithm is, I, I think it's just another way. It's kind of like another painting. Um, it's just a painting that's expressed rather than through brushstrokes, it's expressed through code. Um, but if you look at it that way, you can understand that like, it can be an interpretation of nature without being accurate. Um, and that can still be valuable just as starry night is valuable. Um, and the reason it can be valuable back to science is because some of the thoughts it gives you will be stepping stones that then lead back to scientific insights. So we're straddling between science and art here. But the thing is, it's not necessarily a harmful thing to do. Um, and so we, we should actually consider whether, like, to the extent that an algorithm actually is an artistic inspiration, which I think a lot of what I was doing was. Like when I was building things like NEAT, I was inspired by like the increases in complexity in nature. I was never under the delusion that NEAT is an accurate depiction of how evolution works in nature, but it's kind of an mm -hmm. ode to nature in a way, like the way a painting might be, um, but it's never discussed in that light. You said in, in your presentation last time that um, you, were, you were becoming a little bit more radicalized because you were doing it to not computer scientists, artists. And all of a sudden they were saying to you, oh my God, Kenneth, like 
finally, my parents keep saying to me, why are you doing art? Why are you wasting your time? And mm. now I understand. Now I actually have a sense of purpose. It means something. And mm. I think what you were saying a second ago, because it's quite interesting, you said, or oh, a starry night. And you could say that's a kind of model or a kind of representation. But is it fair to say that you're actually more interested in analogizing the process itself? Like analogizing the process of discovery in AI with, with art, is it? That's what you mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's an analogy between art and AI. It's more than just process. It's like, it is a branch of art. Like it's literally about like reproducing natural phenomena in artifice, which is what artists do. Um, it, the, the difference is that the, um, the, I mean, art is, you know, you might say it's like, there's more of an aesthetic emphasis or something in art, but, but I mean, it's just a choice. Um, I mean, that's what we're doing in AI. Um, we're interested in, there, so one, one exception though, I should say for the artists who are listening, which are probably few, uh, but, but I, <laughs> I want to acknowledge that that's not the only thing the art is concerned with. I, when I wrote about this, I actually, I wrote a paper on this. It was, um, one of the weirdest things I did because I actually went to like a real library and was researching art history and things like that. I felt like a real like scholar or something in the library, but, um, I, so I got a lot of, I got some criticism from artists and like one of the things they were pointing out was that it's not always about the reproduction of nature. Like at least there's some modern art that has nothing to do with reproducing anything. It's just about like the pure aesthetics. I, so let's just acknowledge that that's not all art is about, but much of art throughout art history has been about that. It's certainly a part of art is to do, is to reproduce natural phenomena in artifice. And that's what art AI right. is. So it's not just a connection. I think it is art. Um, it's just that we're not willing to discuss that side of it because we're very, we're very proud of ourselves for being scientists. It makes us feel good about ourselves. But the reason I started thinking about this is because I start, I was getting in some arguments with people where the kind of, um, the crux, the, the breaking point where they tried to basically stop it and say, this is the end of the argument was basically to say that what I was saying was not scientific. Um, or like, this is not a scientific question. It can't be objectively mm. analyzed. Um, you can't mm -hmm. get an objective, you can't get falsification on this question. So it's basically not subject to debate. Like, let's not talk about it because it's pointless. And I felt like that is just pure cowardice. Like we are, we are, you are just saying you are afraid to inquire in directions where you don't know how to falsify. To me, that's just cowardice. And I do not like associating science with cowardice. Um, and I started thinking about, you know, am I really doing science? <laughs> like maybe there's another view here. Like, I don't know that I was like fully just trying to, to create, generate hypotheses and validate or falsify them. Um, there's an artistic side to, I think, creating these algorithms. Um, and mm -hmm. I think it might be healthy to acknowledge that. It's interesting to think about. I, I, um, I think your frame of reference doesn't seem to fit into the paradigm of science in so many ways. And, and I remember you said on the show last time that you were exasperated that um, pick breeder was not recognized as being scientifically useful. And there was another convergent um, committee version of pick breeder. And then the images just look like um, wallpaper backgrounds. But um, to your point before, I, I kind of agree with you that when you look at what happens in, in the process of art, it, it seems very intelligent, but I'm trying to understand where the intelligence lies because I'm, I'm interested in, in the idea of, of it being embodied, mm -hmm. for example, and, and an emergent phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, so clearly when human beings um, collaborate together in this divergent way, that's, that's something very interesting. But um, what would happen if the agents producing the art were much less intelligent than humans? Do you think that could still lead to a kind of intelligence um, at a larger scale? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I just want to also like preface by just saying that I'm, I'm not against science. I, don't, I, do, I do like being associated with science. I don't, I don't want to be now categorized as an artist only. Um, I just think that we're straddling both here. 
um, and, and the mechanisms of science clearly have served us well in many cases. So I just, I don't want to be associated with kooky views that like we should get rid of science or something like that. I just think it expands our horizons to understand what we're doing and how it relates to art. Um, and I also, just before to answer the question, I, I think it's also important to note that I'm not just making the generic point that like there's an aesthetic aspect to science, like which people have written entire books about, like people have pointed out before, not, not me, but like there's famous books, um, that have been written about how, uh, you know, science has an artistic side, like an artistic inclination can help you as a scientist. Like, I mean, this is not new to, to point these things out. Um, but I'm trying to make a much more literal point that AI itself, specifically AI with the word artificial in front of it is really about art in a strong way. Um, and this is what has not been acknowledged. This point has also come up in, in mathematics. And for the life of me, I can't think of, you know, whether it was Penrose or maybe even Gauss or somebody, but a, a legendary mathematician made this point. They were, they were bemoaning the fact that there wasn't more creativity in mathematics. Because if you look at some of the greatest achievements of mathematics, they were these things that were created that were entirely new, uh, you know, like, like um, uh, calculus you know, from Leibniz or Newton, right? I mean, just these new creations, new ways of thinking about things um, that were really inspired from a more artistic sense. Yeah, and yeah, and he was yeah. he was making the same point that like, that's mathematics. And to, and to kind of say like, well, no, if it doesn't have a certain level of rigor, you know, it doesn't approach mathematics. Well, in order to get to those, those forms of rigor, you first have to have that stepping stone, that inspiration you know, that generates, you know, something brand new. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I gotta figure this out, but I forget who it was. Um, and they made this point. So if it applies even to mathematics, you know, it has to apply also to things that are more mm -hmm. grounded in reality. So I think your point completely stands and, um, mm -hmm. you know, it is, it is sad that it tried, that people try to dismiss it as, well, that's not science or that's not mathematics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting response to it's like, good, it's not science. Like, I wonder where that leads exactly. It's like, I'm not pretending to be talking about science. Like, it's still something we should discuss. Good, it's not already known. Um, it's I'm doing something new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where, where does the intelligence lie, I, I think, was where I was getting at. I, I'm really fascinated by this idea that oh, yeah, it's yeah. not in the brain that it's in the process. Mm -hmm. And I, I, th I think your I see, ideas are going in that direction. Yeah, oh, I remember your question. Yeah, yeah, so... Like, what, like if, if a less intelligent, if there was a less intelligent kind of move towards art or less intelligent um, type of agent that was um, involved in an artistic evolution, like what, what would be the quality of that? Um, yeah, I think, um, I do think it's possible for there to be artistic. It's, it's complicated because like art is subjective. I mean, we're making it for ourselves. So like... The, like if there were things that aren't us that are doing something artistic, like presumably they're making it for themselves. So it might not be interesting to us. I'm not sure it would, it might be interesting to us, um, but it would, it would be a process worth paying attention to in some way. Um, I do believe that um, because it would, it would have these, um, these properties of, you know, trends and stepping stones and um, like an evolutionary process, like a phylogeny would result from that. Um, mm -hmm. whether it's of interest to us is, is, I mean, just the, the artifacts themselves, I'm not, I'm not totally sure that they, they would be, um, cause, cause a lot of, I mean, art does often reference things, like I said, in nature, cause that's what our experience is. I mean, if you have no experience of nature, 
uh, are, are, can't be about that then. Um, so what is it about? And it just, it could be about other things, just mathematical relationships. Some, some small subset of art is, like I said, like, I mean, some modern art has nothing to do with referencing anything in the world. Um, but, um, but so maybe we, some people would appreciate that. Um, but even those things seem to relate to some emotional resonance or something like that. Like these, these, these beings may have no emotion. Um, so I don't know where you'd enjoy this, but, um, but from a kind of like, just like analyzing the process point of view, I think it might be interesting because there would be such yeah. a process. It's, it's so interesting because the, the rubber meets the road. We're, we're talking about this, um, all of these brains operating together in this divergent process. And you were just saying that an, an artist possibly has some kind of phenomenological resonance with a situation. And um, I'm, I'm interested in, in the kind of continuum between brains and the kind of algorithms we produce in computer science, because I think you, we mm -hmm. could all agree that ne neural networks and optimization algorithms, they don't seem very human-like, and they certainly don't, don't think the way humans do, even if they can produce intelligent, seeming mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. so, so you really lean into this idea of trusting our instincts and subjectivity. And a cynical mm -hmm. reading is that our subjectivity is essentially random. And a random search mm. would be the most divergent search, but that would clearly be rubbish, right? So there must yeah. be some kind of continuum between a totally random search and a principled divergent search. So how would you kind of articulate uh, and reason about that? Yeah, um, it's true that, um, that any kind of divergence that pushes too far towards randomness, I, I don't think would be interesting. Um, and I don't think that's what artists... I don't think that's what human artists are doing because um, I don't think it would be interesting. Um, it's just that um, art is, um, they, are, they are really concerned with what's interesting, I think, um, but without the constraints of science. So it's not supposed to prove something that you, you're trying to figure out whether it's true or not. Um, it's just supposed to lead to some kind of insight or feeling or something. It depends on the artist. And of course that then points back to things we care about, like, cause we're humans and we care about having insights. And of course the things we want to have insights about vary, but like generally art that we appreciate, like leads you to, to having some realization that is generally commonly held, like that people would agree is interesting. Um, and so, um, the artists are exploring that, um, and that leads to other ideas, um, that might not be art. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, like a scientist can be inspire, inspired by art you know, to think about a phenomenon or, or, or somebody else can be inspired. An architect, obviously, many times inspired by art. So there's lots of inspiration that comes out of art, philosophical as well, like about like how the world works and what matters. Um, there's plenty of topics to talk about that aren't, that aren't falsifiable in a scientific sense. Um, and, you know, with, with, with AI algorithms, they... I think secretly a lot of the explanation for what has r risen and fallen within a within AI is that not, not the actual scientific results is that people have resonated. I like that word. Cause that's really about art. It's not, it's not about uh, correctness or accuracy. It's about resonance and people have resonated with certain algorithms. It's like, they just felt it. It got to a point where this is like an artistic realization, not a scientific realization. Like where it resonated with some sense of what intelligence is for you. Um, and it's not like the whole thing. Nobody got the whole deal of intelligence, obviously, mm -hmm. but some part of it like resonates and, um, that can be extremely inspiring. And I think explains certain like inflection points in the history of machine learning, um, where I think it was resonance really that explains it. Yeah. And I think it's, a, it's really interesting what you're saying. And, and I think there's a tendency of, um, of some, uh, to again, dismiss this type of thing as, 
not science, woo-woo, you know, whatever. But I, I think that stems from a, a uh, being insufficiently Darwinian in the sense that, look, whatever's up in our brain, okay, it's the beneficiary of a billion years of, of evolution, okay? And these, these insights and intuitions that we have, even if we're not conscious of them, maybe they're not happening at a level that we can analytically break down, you know, consciously and think about could still be extremely useful and extremely valuable. And so I have no doubt believing that when a human mind sees an algorithm even, it can perceive, you know, some connections to some abstract concepts that have been proven out through evolution as being highly, highly useful. And so you may be seeing those connections. Is that, I mean, does that capture potentially a fair and scientific justification of why we should pay attention to intuition and artistic intuition? Yeah, I, I think it's fair. I, I think, I think though, I, I wouldn't only um, couch it in terms of evolution. I think it's broader than just from evolution. Like it's from our experience also, like experience since you were born. Um, and that's, that's your memories and, and the feelings that you've had over the course of your life that I think enter into, uh, of course, just some evolution explanation for, for how you process those experiences. But, but the experiences are also part of the background for what you appreciate and find interesting in your life. And, um, and I, yeah, I think that that, is, um, as you say, um, a, um, an important part of the, the history of ideas, uh, even in science and what, I guess, what, what is it actually, what's actionable about that though, is that it's interesting to think about the extent to which we should, we should actually, um, allow or facilitate discussion on this level, not at this meta level, like we're talking about just, should we do this, but at the level of here is what resonates to me, like about this specific thing. This is why it's like as a reviewer, like I don't, I don't care if it guys like 5% less accuracy on this set. It's super interesting because X, Y, Z, um, it reminds me of something powerfully reminds me like, can we have discussions like this? Um, we can't right now. Um, and so it's, it's interesting just to think about that. Like, would it, would it help to facilitate progress? Um, would it stymie progress? Cause I think most people would, their first gut instinct is it's bad for progress because it opens the floodgates of sort of like unregulated, uh, like unempirical type of speculation. We're all afraid of that. But I, um, I think we should, we should be cautious, but I think we're too afraid of it. Um, and that like, we can handle this because <laughs> like we, we actually know about th what we're talking about. Like, that's the thing that makes this valid. Like it's again, like if it was just some random person on the street, I wouldn't want to have an aesthetic discussion of algorithms. Um, but if it's experts, I don't understand why we're not allowed to have aesthetic feelings <laughs> and relating things in, in like analogizing things like that seem perfectly fine. We should be able to do that. I say, even if you can't do that, there's a problem. Like what, why are you an expert? Like if you can't make mm -hmm. analogies and actually talk about what's interesting or inspiring about the work. Okay. One thing that I'm wrestling with a little bit here is, I mean, Douglas Hofstadter, the famous Douglas Hofstadter, he once said that he was terrified that AI might be disappointingly simple to mechanize. And I think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here is, I mean, we're talking about subjectivity, but also we're talking about the externalization of, of intelligence. So rather than it being um, encapsulated in, in an individual brain, um, mm -hmm. a lot of it is, is, is emergent and, and can be thought of as, as um, something completely different. I, I, um, I'm concerned about the lack of, the lack of free will for want of a better, um, Mm. It, it, so we've been dealt the, the the experiences and the environment that we have in life. And to a certain extent, is it still intelligent if our cards are marked 
if if everything has been mapped out in my life as a function of the environment that that I'm in and my mm-hmm. life experiences, I, I, I guess I, I have this just as as Douglas Hofstadter did. I have this very fanciful um, idea in my mind of what intelligence mm. is that it's infinitely mm. nuanced, and we have mm. this mm. phenomenological experience. And and uh, you know, for example, um, Hofstadter mm. spoke about Chopin. Uh, this this beautiful piece of music and what the, the infinite nuance and subtlety that mm. must have gone through his mind when he created mm. it and wouldn't mm. it be horrible if 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 that was just the result of quite a mm. simple um process that you could mm. define using code but this is an interesting question um i think um yeah it, it's clear that there's a movement in machine learning towards that kind of perspective of basically simplicity and it goes back before deep learning, I mean, if people were observing that they say, well, like, you know, cortical circuits, like in the brain, all share like a huge amount of similarity. It's like, it is possible. It's all the same algorithm all throughout. And there's just some simple explanation. And then like, when we see like things like really large, large language models that are basically like uniform architectural structures um, that just get bigger. Um, it seems to, it seems to point in that direction that like, it's not like a bunch of really complex, rich subtlety, like going on through the system. Um, we don't know though yet. We don't know. I mean, it, the jury's still out. We haven't actually gotten to human level. And, um, I think that, yeah. And I mean, you can also, you can also point to evolutionary processes too and say, they're also simple. Like there's a simple thing and this is, explains everything. Like it's not really that interesting of a thing in, in and of itself. I don't, I guess to me, it's just, we, we would like to know the answer to this. Like, can you actually get these things to work through very simple processes? That's probably really important, um, to know, like just in terms of being able to do machine learning. Um, but I don't think for me, it would be, um, that disappointing one way or another. I think I, cause I think the subtlety is still in there. Um, it just came in through a different channel. Like, okay, maybe the subtlety is not in the architecture. I, I personally think there is subtlety in the architecture. That's my guess. Like, it's not going to be super simple. Um, but, but let's say it's, it doesn't have to be, it could be all like uniform. Um, but then like what you, what you do and what you care about can still be like the, the constellation of stuff that you learned, what you learned over your lifetime, like what that amounts to, um, in aggregate can still be, I think, highly rich and, and subtle in its connectivity. Um, it's just a structure that emerged from a simple process, which allowed it to emerge, but then the structure itself is complex. Um, so I don't think it would diminish sort of like the, the, the grandiosity of like what we are to me, I could see other people might think otherwise, but it's, it's okay. Um, I don't know what the actual truth is, but that wouldn't necessarily bother me. Yeah. I, I agree with you. It doesn't, it doesn't decrease the grandiosity of what we are. Consciousness you're talking about. I, I was surprised that the guy has so much, um, conversation. It's, um. I, I didn't realize it struck a chord. I find that, I think, we don't know what the motivation is behind that tweet. Um, it's, um, uh, I'm assuming it was meant to provoke mm-hmm. conversation. There's no depth in that tweet at all, but it's not because it's dumb. It's because like, it's a tweet and there's no room to actually talk about all the complexity of the issue. And so I'm assuming that he's not actually making an argument that he even thinks is like persuasive one way or another. He's, he's just provoking discussion. And as such, I think it's effective. Uh, it provoked discussion, right. certainly. It got a lot of discussion going and allowed people to show their cards on this. And I'm, I'm actually curious about what people's cards are on this. Like, people don't talk about this that much. I think it's not, it's not um, immediately germane to making progress in machine learning, so it's 
in some ways you might think it was a waste of time because we can't really use this discussion to get anywhere and people are busy trying to publish papers and stuff. But I'm just, just per personally curious like about what people think in this field because it's obviously relevant like to what we're trying to do. I mean, maybe we're, we're connected yeah. into quite a lot of the symbolic community and on LinkedIn, everyone was just posting saying, oh my God, that, you know, this hype is getting out of control, the runaway train of deep learning. No, it's like, oh, you're basically just like feeding into the hype. But I could interpret that too as completely independent from deep learning hype. Well, it's just basically saying like, is there a threshold that's crossed um, where there actually is like conscious phenomena happening? Um, and it doesn't mean that what we're doing is right at all right now. It's still an interesting I, I question. Loved, I love yeah, it because it's, it is provoking this, this conversation that, uh, you know, we need to be a bit more um, defined in what we mean by consciousness or at least to, to think about it. So I thought, I thought it was for the purpose that Ken thinks, which is to provoke conversation. And I will admit it provoked me to, to tweet something. I, I actually don't tweet much, um, <clears throat> but I actually tweeted something last night because I just couldn't resist it uh, on consciousness. What did you tweet? Um, I don't know if it'll upset you, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, Tim, tell us. What, tell what did you tweet? What's upset him? What did I tweet? I'd have to look at my phone to remember <laughs> that, what I said exactly. But, uh, Trigger warning, Tim. Um, Be careful. <clears throat> yeah. So this is actually connected to our discussion in some subtle way here that we've been having because, like, basically, my tweet on consciousness, I was pointing out that. Um, I've noticed like since the original consciousness tweet, like a lot of people making offhanded comments, basically dismissing consciousness is not a good topic because it lacks an objective measure. <laughs> this is, this is an easy way to get out of this. Um, and the thing that's being missed here is that is precisely why it's fascinating. Like it is the phenomenon of subjectivity. It cannot have an objective measure unless we're talking about a superficial aspect of it. But the interesting aspect of it is the part that's hard to talk about. And so it's literally what it's like from the inside. And so the idea yeah. that we cannot discuss that, it's an interesting idea, is exactly the kind of cowardice that I'm talking about. We're using science to block us from exploring something that's uncomfortable. Um, and if science lacks the tools, like if that's what we're saying, it lacks the tools um, to address consciousness because it is subjective, that's not an indictment of consciousness as a concept. It's an indictment of science. That's right. You've got me there, I must admit. That's, that's a very clever my response. Yeah, don't know how to, to respond to that. But I mean, I personally like to think of consciousness as being the, you know, like qualia and the the subjective phenomenological experience. And and I thought it mm -hmm. was a stretch to say that something like GPT-3 could possibly have any kind of subjective experience. I, I find it a stretch that, that you have subjective experience. I mean, or did I do? I mean, why why a bag of atoms as a subjective experience like qualia? I have well, no idea why that would be. This, this is the problem, right? So um, we know quite a few people and they are so cynical and they argue that um, intelligence is just a parlor trick, that GPT-3 is, is intelligent and we're not really intelligent. And when, when, when we doing, you know, mm -hmm. when, when we think we're thinking, we're just doing some hash mm -hmm. table lookup and it's all a trick. Yeah. Oh, wait, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, and there are people that have argued that consciousness is just like a trick. It's a, you're, you're, and we're just confused when we think we're conscious. It's really nothing special right. going on. Yeah. I mean, if you take that view, then none of this is very interesting. I don't take that view because I believe that there are qualia, but that's just a belief. I can't prove anything. Um, but then again, how could I, it's a subjective discussion. Um, and so like the real, you know, the real issue at hand here is like whether we think that subjective phenomena are real. Like, do they actually exist? Um, and um, it's, to me, it's worth discussing, um, even though it, it's actually outside of the bounds of current science. 
don't know any way that we can look at this empirically. Um, but I, I don't find that ambiguity uncomfortable. I think it's interesting. I like things that are ambiguous. That's where we start learning things. I, I have to hand it to you. You've, you've really got me there. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, well um, that's good. Uh, yeah. Made a point. Yeah, I mean, part of this, um, and some of those points are, are somewhat old. Like the point has been made, I think, many times that science's lack of ability to describe consciousness is not an indictment of, of consciousness. It's an indictment of science. I mean, there's, there's things missing from it. We need to expand it a bit. That's your quote yeah. in my tweet there, but someone probably yeah, I'm just said saying it before. It's, so. it's a, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's kind of an old indictment of it, but I think what I often yeah, see is yeah. that, um, you know, people often cling to kind of extreme definitions of things because if they're confronted with a middle ground, that's completely reasonable, it's just boring. Like they almost just can't accept that that's the mm. answer. You know, for example, for me, you know, yeah, consciousness, yeah, yeah. from my perspective, uh, it's definitely a, a pattern of neural activity in the brain. And it's probably one that's doing something like analyzing the neural activity of other parts of the brain and or itself. And that's it. Like it's, you know, what's, what's the big mystery here? But, but that, that definition is almost mm -hmm. like too easy and too reasonable. And then we have to start talking about, yeah, but what does it feel like to be that? You know, mm -hmm. that, that pattern of neurons. And I saw this happen like in a debate between uh, Daniel mm -hmm. Dennett and Sam Harris about um, free will, okay? Where mm -hmm. Daniel Dennett is saying, look, to me, free will is the fact that you can evaluate options and choose, you know, you evaluate those options and one path is taken based on that evaluation. So, for example, a chess program, if it's evaluating the board possibility and doing a Monte Carlo tree search and it evaluates one as being the best option and it takes that path, that's free will. In other words, it's freedom of freedom of parameter space. It's, you know, freedom, freedom of options. Mm -hmm. And Sam Harris's only response to that is like, well, okay, but that's not what people think. Like that's not what somebody on the street says is free will. They they think it's this magical thing that well who cares? I mean, who cares what what people mm -hmm. think is, is surprising. Like there's people that believe all kinds of things that, that don't have any type of scientific basis or mathematical basis. We find a very reasonable mm -hmm. definition of free will that's totally compatible with the reality mm -hmm. and the pragmatic experience of free will. And yet because it's surprising to mm -hmm. some people or because it's too boring, we just refuse to accept it. Yeah. Well, you, you noted that like, people tend to gravitate to extreme positions. Um, a lot of, it's pretty clear in politics too, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I also think there's something about human nature where people don't like to say, I don't know. Um, and that's like, um, it's really interesting. I think that we don't, we don't admit we don't know. People respond with certitude to things that we have absolutely no idea about. <laughs> and I feel like that is much more of the, the issue with consciousness is that we really don't know. And I do, I disagree with, uh, with, like sort of Dennis position because it's about, he's claiming to know. Um, and I, I think that it's actually most courageous just to say, I don't really know what's going on here. And I can, the reason I think it's re totally reasonable to say, we don't know is because look, it polarizes all of us. Like this is one of those issues where experts can come out in completely different extremes. Um, and there's no consensus. And like when that's happening, probably nobody knows what's going on. Um, we have not come to consensus yet. And so I think there is something deeper going on here um, that, that needs to be addressed. Um, and it's yeah. not simple. And certitude is not the right response. Um, so to me, it's just, I, I would say, I don't really know. 
But I would like, to, I, would, I find interesting to delve into what it is that I don't know, like the details of what we don't know, because that's where it gets interesting. There's lots of things we do know, which is what tends to get rehashed when we respond with certitude. Yeah. Like I know what I know, but I don't, I don't, I'm more interested in what well, I don't know. Well, let me know. just follow up there. So this was a debate between two extremists, one extremist saying there's no such thing as free right. will, it's an illusion. And, and the other one, actually a middle ground, but at least extreme from a certainty you know, perspective, which is saying, here's a definition. But the reason why I gravitate towards that position is because it at least provides us with an operational paradigm by which we can do exactly what you're suggesting, which is explore what we don't know. So if we take it as like, okay, here's mm -hmm. a working definition of free will. Now let's find all the areas where it breaks mm -hmm. down, explore them scientifically. Yeah, it's at yeah, least yeah. useful. Right. Whereas an extreme position yeah, saying, yeah. no, nothing is free will. It's well, an illusion. It's not useful. I can't do anything with that. I, and I, I think it's, it's quite hard to have a definition. I was challenging one of my friends yesterday, Kenneth, about uh, imagine you wanted to yeah. become a billionaire. Um, give me an objective to optimize. And <laughs> it's right. really, really yeah. difficult cool. because you, you can start to scratch yeah. around and talk about diversity and information accumulation all the stuff novelty interestingness but you're you're really scratching around and it's the same thing here we're talking about um consciousness and free will and these mm. are very subjective things and when keith was talking about the dennett sam harris debate um because it's not like free will is about um max you know maximizing the expected reward although perhaps if you created an agent to do such a thing it would maybe you could tune it to behave in such a way as humans behave but um from my perspective free will is about the subjectivity and about the agency those mm. two things and mm. i can't really describe mm. those two things in any more detail than that yeah well I, one one distinction that i think i want to make is that um i would separate in my kind of like questioning and thinking free will from from consciousness like i i think it's two different questions for me i could see why you might want to combine them but i just think they're different i've thought much more about consciousness than free will so i, I would on that i think i'm not i haven't really thought through how to address free will very well um um but on consciousness i think i to me it's about the issue that's that's really um problematic is when it comes to like quality and things like that like there are other aspects of consciousness we might talk about that I, they think are less problematic, but that is very mysterious um, and I feel unresolved. But in any case, we're making a general point here about these kinds of discussions. And um, yeah, I think the, the general points that Keith is making are, are reasonable. Um, and so, yeah. We um, have David Chalmers coming on the show next month. Oh, I was going to say, did you read his book? I mean, that's, that's like, now there's a book. I really like that book because it is about not knowing. <laughs> The book is basically trying to tell, I, that's how I interpret it. I'm no philosopher, so maybe I don't even understand what I'm reading, but my interpretation was basically a big argument about what we, why we should admit that we really don't know what's going on. There's very few books like that. I love a good book about not knowing things. I don't know if you guys know that, um, like one of the very first neuroevolution experiments, because I was in the field of neuroevolution, was Chalmers. He actually did it um, long before all this stuff he's famous wow. for. He, he re-evolved the rules of backpropagation. Amazing. Cited him many times for that. Amazing. Cited he comes up absolutely weird. everywhere. <laughs> He's such an interesting guy. I, I wanted yeah. to talk a, a little bit about some of that stuff because um, there, there's, not, there's not a lot of new work in your space at the moment. And I suppose like, one way to frame the question is clearly mm -hmm. um, poet and enhanced poet are fascinating. And um, they are much more divergent than many other algorithms. But 
Are you aware of anything which has been artificially created which is extremely divergent? I mean, more so than poet even, or, or is that currently the state of the art? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there are still things going on. Like one, one place to look is under the name Quality Diversity. Um, like you can find a whole a website. It's called, I think it's called Quality Diversity Optimization. Unfortunately, the word optimization I wouldn't have put in there, but um, that's what they're calling it. And that's basically about, you know, QD algorithms are basically about like novelty, like novelty seeking things combined with the notion of quality. And um, so you can see like the latest there, like those are divergent in, in, at some level, like almost every paper that there's like 150, I think the last time I looked. Um, but it, but it's the thing about it is it is, it is not yet connected to the mainstream of machine learning, which is why you're not hearing about it or noticing it as much. That's always been a problem historically going back to neuroevolution. Um, it's often evolutionary. Um, but there are some, there is some drift out of that. I think recently, like, um, people have sent me preprints. I think something's going to come out soon, for example, trying to build on like the idea of poet, um, and like that are much more kind of machine learning reinforcement learning oriented. Um, and so there will be things, there's a trickle coming out in that direction. And then, and now we're seeing like there's open-ended learning symposium workshops, like popping up at mainstream conferences. I know I'm speaking at, um, I guess, was it iClear? I think uh, there's going to be a workshop on open-endedness. Um, and so, so there, there's definitely some momentum. I think it's still early and could fizzle out, but, but you're seeing stuff. Um, but in any case, to, to the question, do we actually see something more open-ended than poet? I think the answer is no, currently. I'm not aware of everything going on, but that's a pretty, um, like, maybe like there's some things that improve on it in one way or another, but I, I wouldn't call it more open-ended. No, I think that that's, that's a pretty high bar. Like, um, and, and it's, there is, there is headroom, I think, to, to be more open-ended than poet, but it's a high bar. It is really hard. And, um, I think when people, when people see poet, they focus from machine learning perspective, they focus more on the curriculum learning aspect of it. Like, like the curriculum learning aspect is like a certain perspective you could have. And you could think about it as like, you know, how do we get something really intelligent for a certain kind of problem that has generality? Like I think about something like that. And this is like, gives some clues in that direction, but that's, that's not really going towards with the part that like inspires me, which is the open-endedness side of it. You know, which I, what I really want to see is that it just continues to invent like totally out of, out of the blue, crazy stuff forever. Mm-hmm. And that like seems to get less mind share, like that kind of question. Um, maybe because it's not very practical and nobody's really sure what, what we're even talking about. Like what crazy things do you actually want to see? Um, but I, I would, I, that's the kind of thing where I don't think we're seeing a lot of, a lot of push or progress on the curriculum learning. I do think we see things. Um, and they are interesting within that context. Yeah, the, the curriculum learning thing fascinates me because I, I remember talking at, um, I think, ICML 2019, and it, he was saying, look, look on Poet, there's an example of um, an agent, and we have this curriculum, and sometimes we need to kind of shift between um, a very kind of um, complex environment and then back to a simple environment in order to solve this particular problem. But you spoke about generality, and I would still argue that the the, the kind of, program learned by poet doesn't have generality but the um the process which produced it does so francois chalet has this measure of intelligence Mm -hmm. conception and he 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 has this idea of intelligence being a process so there's like a meta learning process and then it can produce skill programs which can then work in any particular situation Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. i mean is is that similar to to your mindset so I agree that it doesn't have generality. That's totally true. It's, it's, it's a totally about hyper-specialization. This gets to actually the art aspect, the art discussion we were having before. 
to me, that is, that is, that is artistically appealing, um, because it's evocative of nature where like, you're not going for a super generalist in general, like, like each niche is basically like a hyper-specialized niche, um, which, which interestingly eventually led to extreme generality like we, like us like we have an extreme level of generality in certain ways like in certain ways we're not photosynthetic so we don't have that kind of generality but we have intelligent generality but it went through hyper specialization um you know like if you go back to the ancestry you're looking at hyper specialists not generalists that are trying to become more and more intelligent like you're looking at things like flatworms which again are not general generalists in any sense like it's a new reorganization of the body plan um and so I find, first of all, just from an artistic perspective, find um, the, the, the way, the depiction of something that is about like continually branching and just interesting aesthetically um, and something that we should create, like we should create things that do that. Um, but what I notice is that always people point to that as a weakness and say, well, there's a caveat here. It's very specialist oriented, you know, uh, you know, why not go for generality? And actually you could like, um, this is like a fairly intuitive notion. That like, yeah, we can get divergent curricula, but try to, to focus it back down to a centralized point where we're trying to get generality. Right. I mean, I'm not going to give an exact way you can do that, but this is like an a intuitive concept, I think, to think about doing that. Right. Um, but the point right. I want to make, though, is that, look, like some really great kinds of generality, the stepping stones are through specialists. What are we going to do about that? Like, especially like us. Like you could claim that like, we're just going to go straight to super hyper generalization. Like that's where we're trying to go or super generalist or something like that by getting more and more and more and more general. Maybe you're right. Like deep learning is magic. Like we just add more data. It's not that simple though, because the fact that we're admitting we need a curriculum means we don't have the data. So we have to get it somehow. Um, but, but you also have to just, there's something interesting. You have to admit there's something interesting about when hyper specialization actually leads to generalization and this kind of paradoxical stepping stone principle that the things that don't resemble what you want ultimately are the stepping stones that get you to it. Um, yeah. And hyper-specialization is like a really powerful thing because it allows you to drop, it allows you to make assumptions. Like you can assume something about the environment you're entering before you enter because you're a specialist mm -hmm. in that environment. And I think that it can be a disability or a liability. Like if you actually go into environments having no assumptions whatsoever, so you have to be ready for all possible contingencies under the sun. That's what generalization yeah. means in a super general sense. Like, would you want, you know, airline pilots to like not be sure whether they're flying a stunt jet or a passenger jet? Like they've got to do some checks up front to see which scenario they're in. Like if you're just a passenger pilot, you don't do those checks. Like, you know what you're yeah. in. Um, and so I think there's, there's, there's reason to talk more about this issue of like the specialization of poet is actually an interesting facet of it. Um, and not necessarily just like a liability that we have to get around. I've, I've just um, thought of an interesting connection that I had hadn't occurred to me before, but there is um, a link between specialization and divergence. Because if you think about it, a general agent, that's the equivalent of the committee that you hate so much. And the, the, what you were just saying with, with evolution, starting with specialization actually allows you to explore many, many more interesting stepping stones. But um, the thing I want to get to, though, is intelligence must be specialized. Uh, I mean, certainly even in conceptions like AIXI, uh, it's framed in terms of being able to perform tasks in certain environments. There's no such thing as general intelligence. So if you were an alien being and you came down to planet Earth, would you really see that much of a difference between our kind of intelligence and photosynthesis? So um, that's, that is really interesting. Um, it, it clearly originates from specialization. Like, I don't think you can deny that, that like 
the, ex the explanatory apparatus are through specialization. Why is it what it is? Like you're, you're, it's related to the environment we're in. I mean, that, that must be true, obviously. So it, it has to do with, with optimizing within that environment. But I feel like what's going on is it's like something to do with like from that specialization has emerged real general generality. Like, I feel like we, our intelligence is, is sufficiently general to move outside of, um, anything in our environment at all. Like it gets to this question, like where people sometimes say like, there are certain things we cannot understand. Like it's impossible. Like as human beings, it's usually like, well, why can't we, why would there be things we can't understand? Well, it's like, they're just so far outside of our environment. Like they have nothing to do with anything we experience. I, I think I don't really fall into that camp. I think, I think we have the capacity to understand literally anything. Well, um, given enough information, like obviously we can't know about things that we can't actually like observe at all. Um, so we don't know those things. Um, but like if I was given information, I believe I could understand the concept. Like I could understand where did the universe come from? If, if you told me what happened, hmm. like, I think there's a, there is some, it's, there's nothing to do with what the kind of situation I come from, but I think I have the capacity to generality. So I think it's, it's really interesting that, that like somehow a degree of generality emerged from this specialization, which goes beyond um, could, just being good in this environment. Yeah. Could I distinguish so though, because Jeff Hawkins made this point in his book as well, that what's interesting about humans is for the first time, knowledge and genes have been separated. So I completely appreciate what you're saying that our, we, we can understand the universe and everything in it, but our behavioral intelligence is still very much tied to our environment. I don't know whether, whether you're familiar with James Lovelock and his Gaia theory and he, he essentially thinks of all life on, on the planet as being kind of like an ecosystem or a meta ecosystem. Well, so could you, could you think of humans as just being a, a product of our environment in that same way? Is our intelligence limited by the environment we're in? I mean, we are, um, I do, our intelligence is, does, it has like, um, some areas where it's more elastic than others, I, I guess, because of our environment. I think that would be true. Like there's some things that are easier to grok than other things because the things that are easier to grok are more aligned with where we come from. Um, and so that's like what conceptually we're adapted for. Like things like the difference between the third dimension and the fourth dimension. Like it's easy to reason in three dimensions. It's quite hard to reason in four dimensions. So we just aren't really adapted to that. Does it mean that I can't understand? I don't think it means I can't understand, but it's just not as flexible. It's not as elastic. Um, and so I, I guess I'm going somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's a little bit of Keith's going to the middle. I don't, like, I, yeah, I don't think either extreme, like we we're completely specialized. I don't think so. Uh, we're like absolutely like generalist in the, the most like flexible sense. No, um, we're somewhere in the middle, but I think that the toolbox we have is sufficient. I do believe to, to ultimately capture anything. I do think we could do that. Yeah. So I, I would, I would argue it's probably an open question. I think this may be a case where, um, maybe you're being too certain because when you talk about like these dimensionality things, you know, I know, um, there are many mathematical structures that exhibit very different, you know, fundamentally different behavior in say five dimensions versus six dimensions versus eight. And I think, sure, people have figured that out. And we did that by externalizing that intelligence, writing down symbolics, doing a bunch of equations. But I think it would be fair to say that no human being has ever claimed that they could grok that in their mind. Like they, they can do it by virtue of this externalized intelligence, but to really hold it in their brain and kind of intuit over it, you know, my guess would be there probably are 
limitations um, to what, what we can do. And that's one of the things that excites me about the potential for HEI. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get to it, but if we ever do get to it, it would be really interesting to see what it's capable of um, unshackled by the fact that it, you know, that we evolved in, in a three plus one dimensional um, environment, you know, to survive. Yeah. yeah. Good points. I, those are really good points. I was, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought of that angle about um, that AI has this potential to break out of that box. And that is, that is an interesting thing about AGI. Um, so yeah. Okay. Point taken. Um, there may be, yeah. So I, I, I am saying something extreme if I claim that we can understand everything that is extreme. Um, right. I guess I'll still right. stick with my claim, but, um, but it might take a lot of effort, I guess. I would... Well, what, the way I see it, the way I see it, and, and I, and I think you may be right about this, at least from this perspective is that it may be, it may well be the case that something like, uh, you know, second order logic or, or category theory or, or these sorts of logics that we've already discovered it may turn out to be the case that they're mathematically sufficient to describe any conceivable phenomenon that we'll observe in this universe. And so I guess I would say you could be right that our, our languages and our methods that we developed, uh, kind of externalized from us and something that we participate in have reached this kind of ultimate level of generality. I just think it's a little bit beyond what a single human mind, at least at this phase of our evolution can comprehend. That's that's interesting because that actually starts to go into this issue of what it means to understand and like this, this debate about like, do, do these AIs really understand? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, there's like different kind of levels of that. So it's true that when I say like, we can understand everything, it's a little unclear what I mean by understand. Like, does it mean just, just apply the right logical language to describe mm -hmm. the phenomenon, mm -hmm. even though we don't really get that like flash feeling of like, wow, I really get it. And maybe that, maybe they're right. Maybe that is out of reach. Keith, why don't you just go and look up our definition of understanding? I, I, I can give you the definition of reasoning that we came up with, which is the ability to derive new knowledge from existing knowledge and experience. Right. But right. this reasoning thing is, is a big thing. Do you know when, when we say neural networks don't reason, a lot of it has to do with this notion of extrapolation. And people talk about the very geometric notion of extrapolation, but we're talking about being able to execute a function in some you know, logical, discrete space. So to be able to take something we know and extrapolate it into a new situation, spoken like Gary Marcus, and I'm sure you've had this conversation with Gary many times. <laughs> um, yeah, Gary has very strong feelings about understanding. That's true. Um, yeah, very interesting feelings about that. So it just took me a bit to go look up because we, we did have some, some episode where we were really getting into defining some of these, these concepts. With Gary. Right. And at least here's how I, I define these. So maybe we get your take on them. It could be fun. So it's that reasoning is the act of deriving new knowledge from prior knowledge plus new information. Uh, semantics, a mapping from structures, whether mathematical, logical, symbolic, or other structures to physical reality. And understanding we had as the act of deriving new semantic mappings from prior semantics plus new knowledge. Hmm. Bit esoteric, but that's how we defined it. <laughs> so understanding is, you know, is really was the ability to like, okay, if, if I have a world model that understands something about physics, you know, that, that like gravity exists and, and balls roll and whatever, and somebody gives me a new, some new knowledge, which says, 
you know, hey, um, this ball is actually hollow. You know, from kind of my understanding of physics, I can now, un- and I just use the word, because I understand this semantic model and you give me this new knowledge, I can now derive new semantics. I can say, well, the ball is going to behave now in this way. In other words, I have a new mapping to the, this physical world because I've gained new knowledge. Um, that's kind of the way in which we perceived understanding. So with like the, this was in the context of natural language, um, you know, processing, let's say, or or systems that do that GPT three or whatever, because it doesn't have the semantic model of the world. If you say something like the beer fell off the table, it may not be able to derive that now the floor is wet and, and somebody might slip if they fall, um, that that requires this kind of extra level of understanding. Yeah. And, and that, that's, um, filling in the, the, the gaps as well. So a lot of NLU people say that the one thing neural networks can't do is extrapolate over the missing information. And that's a great example. So you could reason that we've just knocked the beer off the table. Now the floor is wet. So there's, there's a, there's a kind of exponential space of missing information that we need reasoning to fill in. Okay. I, I have to admit that I, um, to probably disappoint you because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't really like definitions. <laughs> so like, uh, I just never find definition discussions engaging or, or really helpful to me. I really, some people, I, I, again, I often find that, that appeal to definition is often just a way of escaping an uncomfortable situation. And I want to go towards the uncomfortable situation. So it's like, we often will say, well, no one's really clearly defined consciousness. Like first, before I'm going to discuss it, you need to define it to my satisfaction. Well, okay, we're, we're obviously not going to discuss it then. Like, I'll never satisfy you. Right, right. Um, and so it's often, and then, you know, AI, decades of discussion, what is intelligence? Um, and we, we see it in even open-endedness. We start having a problem, like in this small field, like there's their open-endedness workshops that come. And like half the papers were just like, what is like long pages and pages of definition and terms. It's like, well, are we going to ever do anything or just, we're going to argue about this for the next decade. Like what is, what are we even talking about is what we're going to talk about. Um, and I feel like a lot of this is not, uh, not necessary. I, I feel like I can, I can talk about consciousness. I can't define it for you to your satisfaction. I can talk about intelligence. I can make progress on intelligence. I can talk about open-endedness. I don't care really what the definition is. It's just, you're going to use it to stop me from talking. So the, the, the only thing that I'll defend <laughs> there is that, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm, again, I'm a pragmatist. I believe in defining things to the extent necessary to communicate. And so we have to have, you know, it's kind of like going back to the whole, um, you know, hyper-specialization leading to innovation. You know, if you just have a divergent, divergent thing, I think I made this point in our, in our first video, you're just going to end up with a universe of gray goo. Like the really fascinating thing is that because there are these constraints of you need to survive in order to pass on your information you wind up with this kind of beautiful tapestry of hyper-specialized things that recombine to become more general. And, you know, it's far more interesting than either extreme, like either the gray goo or like the, you know, the nothing, you know? And, and so as far as definitions go, I think that, um, I, I don't like to sit there and, and, and pedantically argue forever about what the definition of intelligence is, but we need to have enough of a definition that we can make progress in learning and kind of doing scientific hmm. discovery. So things like the, the beer falls off the table and it's wet. Well, if a, if a, if a system can't figure that out, we notice that it can't figure out kind of a class of things. And that class of things has something in common. And then we give it a name and maybe it's understanding or whatever. I don't care 
but it's just a way of talking about that class of, of problems of things that it's not able to achieve because then we can try and figure out how to do that. Yeah. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I, th I think that the symbolists though, that when they, when they, um, come up with formal arguments, it's not, that doesn't come first. They notice that neural networks can't do something, which is to say they, they can't fill in the, the missing gaps. And then they come up with a formalism to express why that is. And also many of these symbolists believe that there are kind of platonic um, abstractions that exist in the universe. They think that mathematics is discovered, not invented. So, so, that, so that kind of formal um, apparatus is, is how they understand the world. Well, I, I feel like I should try to solidify my attack on definitions since it's obviously fairly, again, radical thing to say. <laughs> um, I, I, I would acknowledge, like in the sense that Keith is saying that, again, like I, I don't want to be a crank. Like obviously you need to define some terms sometimes. Like that's obviously clear. That should be completely clear. I'm not against that. Like, you know, especially like you're, you're going to derive something and you're writing a paper or, or you have a certain set of assumptions you need to know what they are like in order to prove that it actually is true or not true if that's what you're trying to do like that makes total sense to me um so we're not i'm not a, a blanket saying we shouldn't have definitions but i think the thing about definitions that's interesting like a lot of things is that there just isn't solid ground like in terms of like they're just generally good for you like they can be good for you or they can be bad for you they can be a tool of clarification or they can be a tool of obfuscation and it depends how you use them and I often find them to be tools of obfuscation, like, especially when we're talking about things we don't know, which is once again, the problem, which is what I'm interested in. I want to talk about things that we don't know. And that seems where people get really passionate about definitions. So it's like, what does it mean to understand? We don't know. I don't know what I do know, though. I'm confident there's such a thing. There is understanding. It might be a continuum. Maybe it's not just a binary concept beyond that. I don't really know what it means. Um, and so I would be interested to talk in depth, like, what does this really mean? Like, let's look at this. Um, but no, we have to like, we just end up in this like a big argument about the definition. Um, and I find that in that case, it's obfuscation because it's fear, because really like if your whole pitch is like your thing that you get a lot of traction on is basically attacking the fact that things don't understand, um, then you might be a little uncomfortable if we really start dissecting what you mean. And so you should just come at us and just tell us like, Hey, you're not even being clear in your terms here and just stop the argument in its tracks. Um, and that's the kind of definition I don't like. I mean, I'd rather just like, look, we agree. There's, I don't know exactly what it is. You don't know exactly what it is. Let's talk about it anyway. It's uncomfortable. Um, but there is such a thing. That's what we should agree on. Do we agree there's understanding? Like, do, does understanding really exist? Well, see, that's the problem is, right. But that's the problem is you can run into fun, some folks that will go that extreme and say, there's no such thing as intelligence. It's, it's all just. Yeah. So, but look, I agree with you in principle, which is, again, I like definitions insofar as they're necessary to enable communication. So I'm totally on board with the idea that we need to be talking about things. And, and that's why I kind of like say the coherence theory of knowledge, because it, it acknowledges, look, we're never going to get to the, the foundation beyond which there's no other foundation that we can imagine. We just need to understand far enough and define things far enough that we can make progress. So um, I'm a little bit, I can, I can completely understand where you're coming from, Kenneth. It, you think that we have a fundamental fear of the unknown and we're hiding behind our formalisms. And my only worry is that it's, it seems a little bit anti-intellectual because you can, you can make an observation that an AI model is not behaving the way we are 
there's loads of assumptions there. We assume that we are behaving intelligently and we are doing things the right way. But but then you can say, oh, um, let's resist any formalism to try and break this down analytically. Do, 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 you, see, do you see the conflict there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, um, it's a dangerous position because it's clear that some formalism is necessary. Like I tried to concede, I mean, uh, I'm walking a tightrope. So it's, um, it's not, yeah, it can't be, I can't make, I can't make this blanket claim that like formalism needs to be completely thrown out the window. That'd be, that would be, that would just destroy my credibility. Um, but like the point is these are just pendulum. These are pendula. What is the plural? Pendulums. <laughs> these are pendulums. Like they swing in different directions. So like, like we become so enamored with this, which is a useful tool. But to the point where it actually becomes like a form of obfuscation. And I do believe definition is like that. Like definition, it's not always, um, and it's not everybody. But like a lot of the time when like there's an uncomfortable issue, like we immediately jump to definition to obfuscate. I think consciousness is one of the greatest examples of that. It's like there's clearly a mystery here. Um, and I agree there are a few people who would disagree there's any mystery at all. Um, but to me, it's clear there's a mystery. Don't need to have a definition to know there's a mystery. Uh, we could get into why it's mysterious. That's more dis interesting to me than what the definition is. But if you jump at me with this definition stuff, like you're going to stop me from getting into that. I feel like that's pure obfuscation. This is one of the greatest unknown things in the entire scientific world, like consciousness. It's one of the greatest mysteries of all time. Um, and like, so arguing about definitions, is that really where we're going to go with this? Like we don't need, maybe we don't have a good definition yet because we don't even know what we're talking about. That's part of why it's so sure. mysterious. I think this is quite interesting, though, because with consciousness, we clearly don't have a mental apparatus. Um, and, you know, like, for example, if someone just took some hallucinogenics and they just had a completely crazy visual experience, they wouldn't have any words or any mental framework to hang this off. Whereas when we're talking about an apparatus to describe intelligent behavior, we absolutely do have an apparatus to hang things off. So I guess, is that a spectrum in your mind? Um, yeah, there is a spectrum. I, I, I would also concede that, um, and the, um, with, with, with consciousness, yeah, it's true that we, we, we lack it. It's much worse for us. It's true because it's, it's ineffable, which is just another way of saying you can't put it into words. Like all the things we're discussing have no words. Um, like the blueness of blue, like I can't actually describe it. You can't break it down into parts or say what it is. Um, and so that makes it extremely difficult, like to actually get into anything formal about it. Um, whereas intelligence, I would grant that you can, to some extent, like you can actually point to things that can be reduced to words, um, or symbols, um, or formalism. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit better on that slippery slope. It's higher up and like less, less dangerous. Um, but still, uh, I think it's still on a slippery slope. Like there's, I don't think we, although we can talk about intelligence more easily than consciousness, I still don't think we really fully uh, grasp this either, um, or really have the words to really get at what we're talking about. We don't understand ourselves well enough to understand what we're talking about. Um, and so it's, there's still a little bit of this room for you know, obfuscation, um, where we fail to address the mystery itself by just deciding to focus on the definition. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we did understand it, or had a clear definition, you know, we wouldn't be having so many interesting papers coming out, like on the measure of intelligence. And that was the thing that I liked about Chalet's paper is, hey, as long as it's an operationally useful measure, 
um, then, then that helps us. Um, it turns out while it's kind of a, a nice framework to think about things, there isn't yet a measure of it. Um, you know, kind of working on that he's working on that. But again, I, I love the idea that we just, um, you know, the goal here, like you said earlier, is really to talk about things, you know, it's to communicate, it's to learn, it's to make progress, it's to explore and, and to some degree to make life better, to exploit, but it's all about just doing almost the minimal necessary to enable communication and, and exploration, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, like the, the ultimate point is to explore and, um, yeah, I just like to go to places that, um, are ambiguous, like on purpose for some, I feel like that's what we're supposed to do. Like if we're talking about science right. or art. Um, those are like the really interesting, uncomfortable places where you're going to learn something. It's almost like how in exactly. physics, um, physicists always want to go to where two, two great theories collide and nobody knows what happens. Like what happens at the surface of a black hole where quantum mechanics and general relativity collide? There's a lot of unknown and ambiguity there. That's where the real progress is going to come from. You're sitting, you're sitting right on the boundary of chaos and order. You're trying to straddle that, that <laughs> straddle line. Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, Professor Kenneth Stanley, it's it's always an honor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was super Thank fun. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Amazing.